Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Now, our text for today is in Philippians 3. And as we begin this new sermon series called Disintegration, Reintegration, and as we are exploring um, uh, the good news of Jesus in the midst of suffering and death, um, I, I want us to just turn to the words of Paul in Philippians 3. And this is, this is what it says, and this is kind of how we're going to begin our exploration into navigating through suffering over the next five weeks. And this is Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul writing to his friends in Philippi as he's talking about joy and suffering. And I think that there's no better way to introduce this topic of suffering and exploring the good news of Jesus in the midst of that then through the Philippians series. So we're going to walk through this passage here in a few minutes. So uh, as we begin, I want to talk about this idea of suffering as disintegration. So as I was thinking about how to process through suffering, this word disintegration and reintegration kept coming up in my mind over and over again. And this word disintegration literally means to break down or break apart. And, you know, as, as I was talking with Rachel about this word, um, we were thinking through some visual imagery that comes up when you think of disintegrate, right? And, and one of the more recent cultural examples of that is at, at the end of Avengers Infinity War, okay? So, um, it, the spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't watched Avengers Infinity War, we're going to spoil a little bit about it. So, at the end of Infinity War, um, Thanos snaps his fingers, and there's a picture that's going to come up on the screen here in just a second. And, and what happens is, is, is that Spider-Man, you see him right here, he's starting to disintegrate. He's starting to, to fall away, right? And, and he kind of turns into dust and floats away. And then we find later that the heroes are able to save um, all the people that had been disintegrated. But typically when I think of disintegration, I think that that's how most of us think about it. But there's a second um, image on the screen. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, you won't be able to see it. But the image is one of Legos. Okay, So I, I, I don't want us to think about this idea of disintegration like the Avengers like dissolving, like just becoming dust and floating away, but rather um, disintegration is like Legos. It's, it's, it keeps the integrity in the individual parts to be put back together again. And so there's a certain element of suffering. We're going to talk about suffering is disintegrating, yeah, um, disintegrating here in a minute, but there's an element to who we are that stays connected, but, but it's just it's shattered, it's broken down, and it can be rebuilt again. And then the second part of the sermon, sermon series title is called reintegration. And that's this idea of being unified again. So essentially rebuilding from what was broken down into something new, better, 
and different. And my friends, suffering is a disintegration. And really what it does is it causes us to break down. When you experience suffering, especially prolonged suffering, especially sudden, massive suffering that shakes your life, what it does is it begins to break us down in, in, in many different ways. And different types of difficulty break us down in different ways. So I, I, what we're going to be talking about four different topics over the next four weeks from now. Um, and, and we're going to go through how each one of these breaks us down in different ways and how the gospel can, can rebuild us back up into understanding Jesus in new and different ways as a result of it. So one of the ways that suffering um, uh, breaks us down is through sudden illness. And that sudden illness that maybe might take away the capacity to work, that might take away the capacity to live independently, to do the things that you want to do. And really what, what happens with the suffering of sickness is that it breaks down our freedom. Really, it's, it's, it's what I want to do with my life. And so what I want to do with my life changes when suffering of sickness enters into my life. When I'm sick, I can't do the things that I want to do with my life. Uh, another type of, of suffering is, is a sudden death. And this might be of a spouse, a parent, a child, or a loved one, and that is just absolutely devastating. And Rachel and I have been walking through some of our friends very recently who have had some sudden and tragic deaths in their life. And when you experience this, part of us feels like we died with them too, doesn't it? When you have someone that you love die, it feels like part of us dies with them. And really what that type of suffering does is it breaks down relational identity. So who we are in relation to other people and who we are in community. So who we are is impacted by the people around us. And so as people are with us, as we form close bonds, that begins to change us. And, and our identity is somewhat connected with the people that we are in deep relationship with. And so when one of those people is suddenly removed from our life, through illness or through suicide or through um, just, just tragedy, that causes a breakdown of our relational identity. The next, and, and there's something that's unique here to our context here in Clarksville and to the military culture, is what I like to call the second suffering of killing. So this, the tragedy of having to take the life of another human being is a disintegration. Really what it does is it breaks down humanity and dignity. Why? Because God designed us to care for our creation. We were designed to care for one another, and we were designed to foster peace. And because of the brokenness that's present in the world, there is war. And because of sin, there is war in the world. And because of that, some of us are called to go fight bravely on the front lines of a war. That's a result of the brokenness that's in the world. And what happens is, is that that what we were designed to care for, that we are designed to care for creation and peace and shalom and oneness with one another, what that does is that is destroyed when another life is taken. And there's a second suffering that happens to the person that has to take that person's life as a result of the course of their job. And so we're going to spend a whole week talking about the second suffering of killing and how to navigate through those emotions and the suffering which breaks down humanity and dignity. And finally, um, and not finally, but for what we're going to discuss is that there is a, another suffering of betrayal or abuse, which is often caused by the intentional choice of someone that we love and trust, right? And the violation that comes from someone that we love and trust, it leaves an indelible mark on our soul, which breaks down our identity. 
It breaks down the core of who we are. See, our personhood, our identity as beloved image bearers who deserve safety, who deserve to receive trust and, and who receive safety in return for giving trust to those closest to our lives, that, that's attacked when we are abused or violated. And what we see is that in all of these cases, suffering is a disintegration. It, it breaks us down in various ways. And Paul introduces the idea of suffering in Philippians 3. And what he's doing, which is really interesting, because Philippians is one of the most joy-filled um, books of Paul's all writing. He's just filled with joy. He's, he's actually not admonishing or challenging the Philippians, saying that they're doing something wrong. He's actually writing out of joy about what they're doing right and calling them to persevere in those things. And yet... Uh, he, he talks a lot about suffering, and he introduces, and he talks about joy in the midst of suffering. And, and as he begins this, he actually begins with his own story. He begins by telling them that he has absolutely every reason to boast about his successes in his former life. He had built up so much in his former life. And he goes on to say that his parents essentially did everything right for him to become a religious elite, a religious ruler. He says he came from a prestigious family heritage. He followed all the rules of the law in the Old Testament. And, and we see that Paul says he was passionate about his Jewish faith, and he earned, he fought for the right to sit with the religious ruling class of all of Israel. He was renowned in all of Israel. And then he also said that he was successfully persecuting the church. He was successfully killing early church Christians because he thought that they were in opposition to the message of God from the Old Testament. And then he gets to these words in Philippians 3, 7. He says this, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's saying that Jesus comes into his life and wrecks what he defines as success. He's listed off all his successes, all the reasons to boast. And he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because Jesus has come and wrecked what I viewed as successful. And then he goes on in verse 8. He says these words. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So, He's essentially saying all of his external successes are to be considered as a loss. And the question is, of course, why? Paul, you had all these wonderful things. You were set up for success because he has found something more worthwhile than the success or the pride or the family heritage. He says, I have found the most important thing, and that's knowing Jesus. Being with Jesus has transformed Paul's entire gauge, his entire metric of what success is. And in, in fact, Paul says he suffered the loss of all things, and he considers them a rubbish. And that word in the Greek is called skubala. It's actually something that a lot of people like to highlight in, in when they preach on this. It literally means dung. It means poop. It means dog crap. Okay, He sa essentially says, I count it all as dog crap because I want more of Jesus. I want to know more of Jesus. Getting more of Jesus is the ultimate goal, the ultimate prize in Paul's life. So as, as we're going to keep walking through the text in a few minutes here, but as Paul introduces the topic of suffering and what we're going to see that he introduces is this idea of dying and rising with Christ. He introduces this by saying nothing matters more than knowing Jesus. 
And getting more of Jesus is worth the loss of all earthly realms of success or all earthly realms of security. And so my, my question for us as we consider this in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, and maybe just like a, like a parenthesis here as we think through how to apply this specifically, is when we are in good times, do you struggle like I do to believe and see the value of Jesus above all else? I don't know about you, but I struggle with that quite a bit. When there's money in the bank account, when the cars are working fine, when I got a little bit of flexibility, when I got a little bit of leisure time, when I'm in a groove, I struggle to see the value of Christ. I often do. And often the trappings of comfort blind me to the worthwhileness of Jesus, to the worthiness of Jesus in my life. And so as Paul begins to talk about suffering loss, disintegration, a breakdown of what he perceives as valuable, he is immediately saying that Jesus is the ultimate value. He is worth the loss of everything. So we see that suffering is a disintegration. Next, we see that we actually have a response to suffering. And the topic of suffering in our culture is often either, it often either lacks transparency or it is threaded through everything. It's either, it's either untalked about or it's threaded through every single thing that we do. And so this is how we tend to respond to suffering. And we tend to respond to suffering, I think, in about two different ways. And a lot of those ways depend on our background and our cultural context, okay? So the first way that many of us respond to suffering or difficulty in our life is hiding. That's a lack of transparency. So uh, traveling just underneath the surface of our conversations and our relationships. And, and really what this comes out of is, is the, the polite culture of the American South and the military culture for two different reasons. Right? So um, m- many push away this topic of suffering. It's taboo to discuss. And it really what happens is it isolates us. So I- if you're from the South, it's because I want to appear um, polite. I don't want to burden anybody else. I want to appear put together in order to be seen as polite and okay, right? So it's more like I don't want to burden anybody with my stuff. Um, I don't want them to get in my junk. I'm just going to keep everybody at arm's length. I'm not going to talk about any sort of suffering. I'm just going to hide it just to kind of preserve my image and to cu- kind of culturally be polite, right? Um, that, but, but if you're in the military, uh, you, you want to hide that because you want to be successful. You want to be seen as the rock, the stability that says I can go through anything. I can go through any suffering and come out the other side without anybody else's help. I can, put my, I can pick myself up by my bootstraps and I can do it because really what that does is the military elevates and celebrates those types of people. And so it's, it actually is productive to hide suffering in the short term and, and to be isolated. Um, again, in the, in the global, in the American South because of the, the politeness factor and not wanting people to get in your junk and then with the military because you want to be seen as successful. And really the goal of this is to appear self-reliant and put together in both, case, both cases, to be self-reliant and put together. And many times the stories people do tell of suffering is that I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm great right now. I used to suffer, but now I'm good. You didn't know me. I suffered a week ago in silence, but now I'm good and I've overcome it. Look at what I've done. And it's really to feel accepted. So that's one way that we can approach suffering is by hiding a lack of transparency. The other way that we can approach suffering is through working. It becomes threaded through everything that we do. It, it actually becomes 
all-consuming. And really what this happens is, as I've seen this with, with other of my friends, where it can completely consume a person's identity and actions. And really where this happens is in a more progressive or modern culture. And, and, and it, what it does is it brings suffering and pain to the surface in every area of their lives, letting it completely define who they are. So, um, and, and it can kind of take the form of a couple of different things. It can, it can be seeking justice, for instance. So I'm just going to advocate and seek justice. It could also be trying to draw out support from others. I need to be supported in my suffering, and I need you to, to support me. So I'm going to share it with everyone so I feel that support. And, and other times it can be trying to bring resolution to suffering or trying to bring purpose through suffering through activism. Um, if I just share my story, then and I just need to share my story everywhere I go. And, and sharing my story becomes central to my narrative. So my narrative actually becomes about sharing my story. And, and many times this can be appear to be altruistic. Like if I just express and highlight my suffering, I can relive it, I can deal with it, I can relive that trauma over and over again um, because as long as it might help someone else be honest with themselves, right? So it's I'll throw myself on the altar, I'll share my story, and, and I hope to receive redemption and purpose through just helping others. I'll sacrifice my peace to share my story so that others can be brave. That's typically the narrative. But really, the goal underneath of that is to resolve the suffering within and around us by working harder, doing more, and trying to find healing and hope in the acceptance and support of other people. So you're constantly looking at other people around you and sharing that story, trying to find hope, trying to find acceptance and resolution. So this is unfortunately what happens. This is the tragedy of suffering and sinning is that when, when we experience someone sinning against us, we engage with this level of brokenness. Our response to suffering often, often multiplies the pain of suffering. So we have the pain of the original suffering, the original issue, but then it's our response to that pain can actually multiply it in our life. So from the inside, we can multiply that pain through a lack of transparency. We just push it away, and we push others away, and we're isolated, and that can birth even more pain. And it can also be from the outside by constantly reliving it, right? So attempting to resolve the suffering through, through activism, through working, and it just reopens that wound and doesn't ever let it heal. And so, but here's the thing. I, I wanted to present this because I want you to see maybe where you might fall on the spectrum when you suffer. But regardless of how we respond to suffering, there is actually a universal question that happens when we suffer. The question that I have for you is, do you know what that is? What is it? And I'll give you a second to talk out loud to your computer screen or TV like you're a crazy person. But what happens when you suffer? What's the question that everybody asks? You guessed it. It's the question of why. Why is this happening? Why am I suffering? And my friends, the question of why is a question of purpose. We all want to know that our suffering has meaning. There's something intrinsic in the human heart that wants to know that my suffering actually has meaning. And often in this world, we struggle to find meaning in sickness and death and killing or betrayal. And we can even feel more disintegrated. We can even feel more broken down by the seemingly lack of purpose in our pain. So we have, the per we have the suffering, right? We have the disintegration of whatever's happening in our life. Then we actually compound and multiply that pain oftentimes by our unhealthy responses to it, right? Either hiding or overworking. But then in addition to that, we seek meaning. And when we don't find that meaning, 
we actually then feel more pain, like, what in the world did I go through this for? My friends, what if I told you that the scriptures actually told us why we suffer? That it actually gives us a glimpse into maybe God's purpose behind our experiencing suffering and pain in this world. My friends, Paul gives us the beginning of a glimpse of the purpose of suffering as we continue in Philippians 3, starting at the end of verse 8. It says these words. Paul says, I count all things but rubbish, right? Uh, Dog poop. That's what he literally means that. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, on the basis of faith. So we're actually going to leave the text up here as I walk through this, because I want us to think through. This is, Paul says, I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in him, and it is actually worth the disintegration of all things. If I can be found in him, if I can get more of him, if I can know more of Jesus. He has found Jesus to be so worthy of his attention and focus that he says everything else can be bunked because I want more of him. And then he says these words, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Now, here is where the hiding and the overworking come back into play. Now, you see, my friends, when we encounter suffering, many of us put rules and laws in our own hearts that we have to follow in order for us to be okay. So for some of us, there's the law of hiding. There's a law that we create that says, when I hide my suffering and I prove my goodness, I don't need anyone, then I'll be okay. Right? So if I don't need anyone, if I'm independent, I'll be okay. That's a rule. That's a law that we have placed in our own life. The next one is the law of working. When I wallow in my sufferings, I try to prove my own goodness in helping everyone else or working really hard to redeem it myself, right? So there's a law that comes into place of a law of working that says if I can just help others, even if I have to relive the trauma and it never heals, then I'll be okay. But my friends, the true righteousness, he immediately jumps to it, the true righteousness that we seek. Look at what it says right here. Righteousness, which, but that, not righteousness derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. True righteousness, truly being okay, means that we can seek God himself. The righteousness comes from God himself, and it comes on the foundation of hearing his message of goodness for us believing that it's true for us and obeying it by making Jesus Lord over our life and even Lord over our suffering. And then what we're doing is we are not following our own laws, then we're actually following the perfect law of God that Jesus has already fulfilled for us and given us his right record for. So moving on. So how do we reject following the laws of hiding or working and suffering? How do we truly get our rightness and goodness from God, gaining more of Christ even at the loss of so much in the midst of suffering. Well, my friends, the good news is that we don't need to hide our pain or expose it to everyone else in the world. There's actually a third way to navigate the dark cavern of suffering, a way that finds the elusive meaning that we so naturally and intrinsically long for. And that's what leads us to our final point is the good news in the midst of suffering. Look with me at Philippians 3.10. This is the meat of it. This is the core of it. This is the foundation of it. That I may know him. Remember, this whole thing has been about knowing Christ, gaining Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed 
wrapped around, conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, my friends, the good news that God, our Father, has prepared for us, it teaches us some incredibly foundational truths in suffering, loss, pain, betrayal, and death. This is what it teaches us, that, my friends, suffering is never without purpose. That no amount of pain that you go through is beyond the redemptive power of Jesus to save us or the transformative power of the Holy Spirit to change us. So let me say that again. No amount of pain is beyond the redemptive power of Jesus to save us. So Jesus has ultimately walked through the ultimate disintegration. He has been ultimately broken down. He was completely separated from his father, though he was perfect. He bore the sufferings of all of mankind on the cross. And so nothing that you're going through is beyond the power of Jesus to redeem it, to save you. But not just that. Nothing that you're going through is beyond the transformative power of the Holy Spirit to change you. So there's nothing that happens to you that cannot change you for the better to be more like Jesus. And my friends, what happens in the midst of suffering, whether it is sickness or the sudden death of a loved one, whether it is the ongoing suffering of killing in your life and the long-going effects of that, or whether it's betrayal, Whatever that looks like, suffering brings disorientation, and what it brings is weakness, whether we acknowledge it or not. And that's what Paul's saying, the loss of all things. That's his version of that. But suffering brings disorientation, it brings weakness. And my friends, in our confusion, when we turn to the hope of Jesus and to the truth of our identity, who we are and who God is, suffering is actually the way that we meet Jesus. It's actually the way that we are put back together again, that, that the disintegration comes back and we can be reintegrated, we can be reunified, rebuilt into something that more resembles Jesus on the other side of our suffering. Look with me at Philippians 3.10 again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. My friends, Philippians 3 teaches us that there is a way to suffer that identifies with, that actually joins us with the sufferings of Jesus that is redemptive. There's a deep, intimate knowledge of Jesus' sufferings. This is actually how we gain Christ. He said, I want to gain Christ. I want to know more about Christ. And then what we find is that in the midst of our suffering, that is actually how we do that. That is how Paul is accomplishing his goal of knowing more of Christ, of gaining more of Christ, is through faithfully walking with Jesus in the midst of suffering. See, when we join with Christ in the midst of difficulty, trial, and immense pain, the weakness and the disorientation that results from that suffering is actually what God uses to reshape us and to change us, to make us more like Jesus. The weakness of our self becomes moldable. We be, when we're disoriented, we become moldable, and God reorients our lives and our hearts to focus on Jesus. We're reintegrated by following Jesus within our suffering. So how does that work? And really, how it works is all dependent on the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Paul immediately talks about, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. My friends, follower of Je followers of Jesus can believe that our greatest self can be birthed out of immense pain and suffering because that's what happened to Jesus. He resurrected from the dead. And it's not just in a metaphorical context, right? Jesus, 
the real visceral bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is his resurrection was not metaphorical. His resurrection is not an abstract concept that simply teaches us a good lesson about God's love for us. The real physical resurrection of Jesus, it actually becomes the central reality of all of human history. And because of this, followers of Jesus are then always on the hunt for ripples of resurrection in our own suffering, in our own life. So because Jesus died and rose again, and he really did rise again physically, we actually can believe that there is no amount of suffering that we can go through that God's redemptive power can't influence or impact. And my friends, there is no resurrection of Jesus without death. You have to die first in order to be resurrected, clearly, right? And my friends, suffering is death. There's a death that occurs in us when we walk through suffering. And this is why Paul says these words, being conformed to his death. You see, in the midst of Jesus's weakness, Jesus's suffering, Jesus's murder, Jesus's betrayal, he accomplishes the central and defining work of all of human history, the redemption of all of mankind back to our Father. So get this, check this out. So in the midst of our weakness, our suffering, in the midst of the sudden death of a loved one or a betrayal from someone that we trusted, that can be a launching pad for resurrection, just like Jesus's death was a launching pad for his resurrection. If Jesus's suffering and death can be redeemed, ours can too. So the question I have for you, what if I told you that suffering was an invitation to learn to love God, not for what he gives us, but for who he is? What if I told you that suffering was an invitation to receive the love of God in a new way that isn't proven by, by our circumstances, but by his faithfulness to us in the midst of our suffering and difficulty? What if I told you that suffering was an invitation to be more like Jesus? So my friends, our suffering in the path of obedience to Jesus is actually us becoming conformed to him in his death so we might become conformed to him in his resurrection. Our disintegration of suffering, it truly does break us down. We need to acknowledge that. We need to be upfront about that and honest about that. But Jesus' resurrection means that we can be put back together again in a different way where we are forever changed as we know Christ, the power of his resurrection, through the fellowship of his suffering. And when we see suffering from this paradigm, we actually can learn what it looks like to be resurrected and redeemed. So how does this actually work? And I'm going to show us a visual here in a second. And a lot of what we're talking about today is influenced by a man named Paul Miller. He's kind of one of my mentor's mentors, right? And this man wrote a book called The J-Curve. And he's done a talk that I'm actually going to link to in um, the description of, of this video that I would like to encourage you to watch. I really think that it could change your life because I know it changed mine. So I'm going to do a poor rendition of this. He is a master at it because he's spent 20 years thinking about Philippians and this idea of dying and rising with Christ. But I, I want us to think through this as, as it relates to this idea of called the J-curve. So there's a graphic that's going to appear on the screen. And for those of us listening on, online, it's just simply a J, okay? And so it, it starts small and it ends, of course, to the right with a lot longer of a line. And uh, as you can see, it says at the beginning of the J-curve, Jesus descends, Jesus dies, and Jesus resurrects. So essentially, the life of Jesus is one of descending, 
right? So he started off as God. He's in heaven, right? He's got nothing that he needs or wants. He's perfect. He still is perfect when he comes to earth, but he did not experience any sense of suffering. And so what Jesus did was he condescended. He left heaven. He lives a re- Jesus lived a really hard life, and he experiences this idea of disintegration, right? He lays aside the rights of God. And actually, Philippians talks about this, where he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So this is Jesus' descent. And Jesus' descent ends in the tomb. It ends at the cross. He comes to the point of the cross, and he willingly embraces the cross. He willingly says, I will die. I will go there. He didn't, he wasn't forced to, but he willingly went to the cross. And then he was resurrected. He accomplished the ultimate work of salvation and redemption for all people. He is alive. And so he does the ultimate defining work of all of human history. Now, the next graphic that we're going to look at is just an additional one. It's the same one. It's now incorporating us. Now, my friends, we have a descent. Suffering is a descent. It is a breaking apart. Everybody suffers. Everybody walks the path of dissension. Everybody walks the disintegration of suffering. But my friends, we have a choice to whether or not we come to the cross of Jesus and truly die to ourselves. See, Jesus says, come and die that we might live. And we can die to ourselves in suffering, or we can wallow in the pain, or we can hide the pain. So we can decide whether we want to wallow in our pain and share it with everyone. We can decide whether we want to hide our pain and not let anybody in, or we can decide to come to the cross of Jesus and truly begin to die. This is what Jesus says in Mark 8. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then, my friends, what happens is is that we then can resurrect again, right? Then, Then what happens is when we truly learn to die to ourselves, and we don't control the nature of our resurrection, God does, but we can be conformed to the suffering and the death of Christ, the death of our will, the death of our desires, even the death of our dreams, even to the death of good things. Then we can come to rediscover life. We can be reintegrated. We can be rebuilt into being a completely new person. And I want to leave this up for just one more minute because I want us to think through how this narrative of viewing suffering is, is both applicable in a lot of different circumstances, but it's also very beneficial for us. The J-curve, what it does is it actually grounds our emotions into reality. Like we can truly acknowledge our suffering. We can truly acknowledge our pain. We can truly see that there is real valid pain in us and around us. And we can be honest about our suffering. But not only that, the J-curve gives us a narrative in which to view all of suffering through. So both small sufferings and enlarged suffering. So I want us to, as we continue to look at this graphic, I want us to talk about a small suffering, and I want us to talk about an enlarged suffering, and how both the J-curve can handle both of those things and helps ground us, root us, orient us into dying and rising with Christ. So I, I want us to think through a second if you're gossiped about, right? So there's a small suffering of being gossiped about. And so that's a descent, right? That's a narrative descent. You trusted someone, you've been in a relationship with somebody, and they start talking about you. I'm being gossiped about and talked about. This is suffering. It's most often not right. It's unjust. And we feel like we want to defend ourselves. There's a pain that happens. There's a betrayal that happens when we're gossiped about. Now, here's the deal. I can reject that person who's gossiping about me, right? I can just pretend like they never existed. I can cut them out of my life, screw them, I never want to talk to them again, right? Or 
what we can do is wallow in it. We can go tell all of our friends about how they're gossiping about us and how bad they are and how I need to defend myself, right? That's kind of wallowing. That's activism. But here's where dying is. Dying says, I can submit to the death of my will to gossip back or defend myself. Because when Jesus was dying, he was falsely accused and lied about and did not open his mouth to defend himself. And even in his resurrection, people still didn't believe him. Right? So I can identify with the dying of Christ in that moment, in the midst of gossip. Then here's where the resurrection hits. I can experience the peace of being free from what others think about me. So then I can say, I don't have to worry about whether I'm gossiping or not, because I've already died to myself, because Jesus didn't have to defend himself. I don't have to defend myself either, right? There you go. Now, here's the deal. I want to talk about something a little bit more serious now. Let's talk about the enlarged suffering of a spouse dying. Now, we begin with the descent. You got married, right? And, and, and that, that is dying to yourself, right? That's actually a process of descent. That's struggling through marriage. That's struggling through the, the ins and outs of marriage. And then what happens is, is that your spouse dies. And that's actually not the death. That's just the descent, right? That's the suffering. That's the disintegration. And what happens at the end of that, in that descent of your spouse dying, you can hide in it or wallow in it. So you can hide by just closing off your emotions. I'm never going to feel again. I'm never going to be intimate with anyone again. I'm never going to love anyone like that person because I loved them. I did it once. I was open, and they died, and I'm alone, and I'm always going to be alone. That's hiding, right? That's rejecting it. Or you can wallow in it. That experience of your spouse dying can actually come to define your whole life. It can come to define everything about you, right? And, and then you live the rest of your life in light of this pain and this suffering. But here's the invitation of the gospel is to come to the cross of Jesus and die. And I believe, you can say that I believe that the Spirit is, is with me in my spouse's death. That I actually deserve to die myself, but God lost his son in death because his son went to the cross as my substitute. And actually, God knows what it's like for me to lose a spouse because God lost his only son. And Jesus lost his dad. And I submit to the reality that God can still be good when I don't get that life that I want. I don't get the life that many of my friends have, a long life with the spouse, or maybe I didn't get a chance to grow as old with my spouse as I wanted to. And then I believe in that moment that the Holy Spirit inhabits my weakness, that the Holy Spirit comes and meets me in the midst of my spouse dying. And then I become completely, in my weakness, I become completely dependent on God because everything I have is taken away from me. That's what it looks like to die. And then here's the resurrection. I can walk the long path of healing into a greater awareness of God's infinite love and sufficiency for me. He loves me. He is infinitely good. And he provides for me, even if my spouse dies. Because God's love is not contingent on getting the life I want and getting the life that others have. But in my spouse's death, I've learned more about Jesus' death. I've become more like Jesus. And I'm tasting more of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus is truly all I need when he is all I have. My friends, you see that both small and massive amounts of suffering can be seen and resolved in the J-curve. 
And we see that suffering is used by God to refine us. And there's this beautiful passage in Isaiah 48 that says these words, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So God says that actually the furnace of affliction, the heat of a moment, when we're struggling, when we're in pain, is actually something that God uses to begin to refine us. And I think that God refines us in three ways through this dying death and resurrection with Jesus. First, he can refine our love. Why do I love God? Do I love God because it's a transaction? Um, Tim Keller calls this the mercenary love of God. Or do I love God because he is ultimately lovely? That there is a surpassing value of knowing Christ, right? Next, do I, it's refining my love in the next way is it can refine my reception of love. How do I know that God loves me, right? Well, if I, if I base whether or not I feel like God loves me on having good experiences, health, marriage, a successful life, when I don't have those things, and I'm like, well, God must not love me if he doesn't give me those things. But if I base my value, if I base God's love for me on the fact that he has given me himself, that he's given me intimacy with him, which is often fostered, the intimacy is often fostered by suffering, then I can go through immense pain and suffering and still feel like God loves me and still know that God loves me. And finally, it can refine our description of joy. My friends, happiness is based on circumstances, but joy is based on who God is and that we already have the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ. You see, God uses the J-curve. He uses the suffering to refine us, refine our love, refine our reception of his love, and even refine our definition of joy. He refines you in the furnace of affliction. And my friends, weakness is the means that God uses to be reshaped and reformed into the image of Christ. Weakness is the death that begins the birth, resurrection. Paul, writing about this, says in 2 Corinthians 12, and God speaking to Paul, and, but he said to me, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My friends, suffering is truly an invitation into the heart of God where we can become conformed to the death of Jesus so we might be conformed into his resurrection reintegrated, rebuilt into something greater than we were before. So suffering, we learned a few things today. Suffering is disintegration. It's a breaking down. We often respond to suffering by either hiding from it to be self-reliant or wallowing in it to try to resolve it, right? But we find also that suffering is the way that we meet Jesus. We can be conformed to his death. That's the spirit actually inhabits our dying. And then we can be conformed to his resurrection, the spirit bringing us back to life. The Bible says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives within you and me. Fourth, we learn that suffering reintegrates. It rebuilds how we love God, how we receive love from God, and how we define joy. And finally, the J-curve is how we can view the suffering. There's a way that there's a narrative that we can view our suffering through. And my friends, one day, you and I will be fully reintegrated. As we close, this is my hope for you today. As we 
continue to explore suffering in the next four weeks. One day we will be fully reintegrated. We will be fully rebuilt again. And God actually gives us a picture of that day. You know, at the end of the Bible, the last couple of chapters, it's, it's actually looking forward to the end of time. And he says these words in Revelation 21 that give such joy and the hope in my heart, even in the midst of difficulty, suffering, pain, betrayal, and death. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. My friends, he is making you new again in your suffering. And when you join yourself with Christ, when you bring your pain to him, the Holy Spirit actually inhabits your dying. And one day, every tear you've cried will be wiped away. And we will live in that newness forevermore. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.